podcast. The book of Romans has been called the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Now, Heavenly Father, as we navigate our way through the epistle of Romans, Lord, what a privilege. And Lord, how profound the truths that set our hearts free here in this wonderful chapter, chapter 3. Now we ask for your blessing and that you would answer the prayer of worship Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, so that we could see the truth, know the truth, apply it, and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let me tell you about four people. They're very different from one another, yet they have one thing in common. Number one, John. He's the quintessential bad guy. He's bad through and through. A liar, a cheat, a scam artist, violent, always in trouble. Vile and vulgar are his middle names. If you meet him, you know, get out of the way because you're in trouble. Now, next we have Mike. He's a dropout from high school. He got into trouble as a young man, but you know, he's buckled down now and he really fell in love with books and studying. And so after much hard work and dedication, he became a lawyer and he does most of his work pro bono, donating to needy people who need legal counsel but can't afford it. And the third guy, Chuck, he came to the rescue of a woman officer who was in quite a lot of trouble. She was attacked from behind, and the attacker was nearly strangling her to death until Chuck sprang into action and uh, jumped on top of the guy, wrestled him off of the officer, saved the officer's life, put him in a chokehold, the attacker, until help came. And so Things uh, cleared up there. And then last, I want to tell you about Rabbi Benjamin. He's dedicated his life to doing good deeds. And what he does all day is he does woodworking and he uh, donates them. He sells them, I should say, and donates that money to charitable uh, causes. And now, so we have a dishonest, unrepentant thug. We have a turnaround story, the benevolent lawyer. We have a courageous hero who saved a life, and not just any life, and a religious man dedicated to doing good works. Very different lives, very different stories, but they have one thing in common. They are all inmates in a federal penitentiary, and you can read their stories online. 
At the end of the day, as different as they are, with their different qualities and characteristics, they all go to bed staring through bars of steel. Whether they are industrious or nice, or whether they are bad to the bone or they've changed their behavior, all of that is really a moot point because they have a larger problem. They're all in prison. Now, this is the point that Romans is trying to make, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, getting you ready to grasp the good news, to want some good news, but first you have to be convinced of the dire situation, and that dire situation is figuratively speaking at the end of the day because of sin and human condition. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do. Uh, At the end of the day, we, all human beings, are locked up, prisoners of sin, have to deal with guilt and fear and death. There's no way out. We are trapped. We are locked up and we are incarcerated, awaiting the judgment of God. This has been the point of Romans chapter 1 through 3 to lovingly back all humanity into a corner so that we would see the one door out. Because unless you're convinced that you're in big, big trouble, you're not going to look for any kind of solution. And so uh, Paul has been very busy He sums it all up here, classic uh, scripture, and I believe I sent it over Romans chapter 3 where he says, no one is righteous. He says, as it's written in the Psalms, there's no one righteous, no one's right with God, no one does the right thing all the time, not even one on the whole planet. There's no one who gets it. There is no one who seeks God and nobility and all of this. Everyone, all have turned away. They have together become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So this sums up, really, what he's been trying to say in three chapters that and, 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 and whether you're a thug, you're a hero, you're poor, you're rich, you're a religious type, you're an atheist, whoever you are, you need a savior because if you're not good and you're trying to be good to attain salvation, this argument right here just shows you you're going to need some outside intervention. And that is the point of Romans 1 through 3, where we're picking up this morning, chapter 3. So Paul has made this really dramatic point where there's really no getting around that because those are big words. For all have sinned, everyone. There's no exception. just doesn't matter. It's never about being good. It's about, from God's point of view, being made alive instead of being dead in sin. The answer is being made alive, not being good. You can't be good if you can't be good, right? Amen? Did that make sense? Are we off and running, people, here? All right, amen. And so now here we go. Uh, the world, he's saying, has uh, been ruined by sin. Our lives have been ruined by sin. 
and the, uh, we're on a collision course with the judgment of God and nothing that humans can do can fix the problem. It's time for us to hear how we could get right with God. So here we are. We're going to pick up here. Now, I'm using the New Living Translation because some passages in Romans are, is kind of complicated. You'll have your favorite translation on your lap as well. Uh, usually I use the 84 NIV, as you all know. But sometimes I really enjoy that NLT. I look up the Greek. I look at it. I look at it. I really enjoy the clarity it brings. And so we're going to get clarified this morning. Verses 21 and following. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the commandments, the law, as was promised in the writing of Moses and the prophets long ago. This is not a newfangled idea. The, new, the Old Testament was trying to tell us that you can only be saved by faith as well as the New Testament. Verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glory, his glorious standard. Yet God freely, as a gift, graciously declares that we are right with him. That's what that word means. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. I'll, I'll keep, we'll read through all of it. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus was sacrificed, that he sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who had sinned in past times, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time through the cross. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. And then he rounds out the chapter by saying, so can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal, our pardon, our deliverance, our salvation is not based on being good or obeying commandments. It's based on faith, period. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying commands. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of non-Jewish people, the whole world? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith. Whether they're Jews or not Jews. Well then, if we emphasize faith, 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 grace, 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 does this mean we could forget about the commandments? Of course not, silly rabbits. <laughs> and the silly rabbits is in Greek. It's really hard. It's really, it's really hard to translate. A lot of translations just leave it out. <laughs> of course not. In fact, only when we have faith can we actually start to fulfill God's commands. Now, doesn't that make sense? 
Let's go back to the beginning, walk through these three points. They're great talking points. The sinner's hope, the first paragraph that you're staring at, verses 21 through 24, note takers, the sinner's sacrifice, 25 through 26, and the sinner's response, the last few verses there of the chapter. So let's dive right in as the ushers turn on a little air. Amen. <laughs> Very good. Thank you very much. We don't want to overheat the sheep. Amen? That's just not good. Yeah, the sheep get a little woozy. <laughs> we can't do that. Did I ever tell you the time we had a new hospitality lady? And she was supplying all the coffee and tea out there. And I walked by, and I saw a whole row of sleepy time tea. I took the package to her. I said, you see this? What does it say? Sleepy time tea. This is bad. <laughs> this is bad news for a church pastor, all right? Some of you look really, uh, no, no. Some of you look like you've had the tea and you don't find it funny. <laughs> all right, moving on. In spite of that, let's dive in. Verses 21 through 24, the sinner's hope. Now, he says, but now. Oh, we've been waiting for those two words. Oh, read, go back and read one, one and two and the most of three. There's no way out. You're condemned. There's nothing you can do. You're condemned. You're going to meet God and you're going to have to pay for every last evil deed. Forever. But now, revealed in the gospel, after what Christ has done, God in the flesh, there's a revelation of how to get right with God apart from being good, apart from your efforts, apart from doing penance and saying a million prayers and climbing Mount Everest barefoot, all of that stuff. He says, you don't have to worry about that because it's going to be freely given you by simple trust. So that's a lot of hope there, right? So until God made the first move, and he did, we were up the proverbial creek without a paddle with a fat hole in the side of the canoe. And that was the point there to get us to understand we need a savior. It wasn't until the light of the world stepped into our darkness. It wasn't until God, Jesus said, I've come down from heaven to rescue you guys and give my life as a ransom payment for you. You needed somebody to come down. A lot of people aren't convinced. They think that they can just go up when they die. He says, no, first I had to come down and get some work done and die in your place, pay for your problem, your sins, your penalties. Then if you trust in me and yield your life, then you can come up, you see. And so he, he made a great point there, and we read it. All have turned away from God. All had sinned in their speech. All had injured fellow human beings, and all had rebelled against the truth and the knowledge that is plainly set forth in creation. You cannot look at the world around you and say there's no God or designer. You cannot have a human conscience and deny that you know you have been fathered 
and that there is a right and wrong. And so he said, yet people still rebel. And then he says, the commandments come, and this is the hard part. The commandments come never to tell you. God never expected anyone to keep the commandments to get to heaven. He gave the commandments with a purpose to point out how messed up we are so that we will look for a savior, a way to get to God apart from doing good works, which we obviously cannot do because the commands tell us, do this. I can't do that. Do that. I can't do that. Stop doing this. No, I can't stop doing that. Well, then there must be another way. Exactly. But now God reveals there, verse 21, there is a way to get right with God that has nothing to do with your good efforts. And so the command has come. I love really... It's a great uh, definition there in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short because the word hamartia in the Greek is to sin there, right? So we have sinned and fallen short, and that's exactly what the word means, to to miss the bullseye, uh, to fall short of the standard, uh, to wander from the path. That's what it means. Then there are a lot of other nuances Uh, with sin about evil and rebellion and wickedness and lawlessness. But this word here means God's got the measure. You want to come to heaven? Here it is. And every single human being falls short of that. So there has to be another way besides your behavior or what you do to get you there. Since you can't get there on your own, you know, people, you know, if you said, let's go, I'll go swim to Hawaii. There'll be lots of people uh, who get, you know, a few hundred feet. Maybe there'll be some people get a mile. Maybe there's somebody who's going to get 25 miles, 50 miles. But nobody's going to get to Hawaii alive by swimming. That's the point. It doesn't matter that you have 10 gold medals in it. You can't do it. So you're going to have to find a different way. You want to go to Hawaii? You got to find a boat (laughs) or a plane. Amen? Amen. Expedia.com. So the purpose of the 10 C's is to give you 10 little heart attacks. All right. You're supposed to read the 10 commandments with gasping for breath. But the Pharisees read them in self-denial, patting themselves on the back and playing games and saying, well, you know, you know, I kind of do this and I kind of, yeah, whatever. Since the commandments are not your friends and the Jews were like, we got the commandments, we know the truth. I can quote them all, but they condemn you. That's the problem. They condemn us. They tell us uh, where we're erring. And so on to the good truth here, it says, but... Now, God reveals a way to get right with him that does not involve human effort and goodness. And so he sent his son to get the job done and just requires a simple trusting in him. Not the acknowledgement, and listen to me well, (laughs) faith is not an intellectual assent that, that there is a God or that Christ died. That's, that's to, a lot of Americans think, well, I believe in God. 
What they believe, what they mean to say is, I believe there is a God, and that, sir, saves no one. You cannot be saved by knowing in your head there's a God and not trusting in your heart, your life to him. Because trusting and faith, it, and the word faith means to fall onto, to believe onto, to believe into something. And it doesn't make sense in English. But in Greek, it means more than just trust. I trust or I believe. As James is going to point out, James says the devil believes in God. And that's not going to help him out at all. So when he says you've got to trust, it means you've got to surrender because you believe. And that's where the work, the saving work happens. So he says that we've made this revelation. We made right with God by placing our faith in Christ. Somebody took the fall for you, he says. They went to the gallows in your place. And that's the only way it could have happened. When you trust and yield your life to Christ, who God freely, and look at that word in your text, because it just means to give a gift, to give a gift, graciously declares, look at, look at this, he declared the guilty not guilty. That's the gospel. He can look at a guilty person and say, and it's coming up how he can do this, by being just, he can look at a guilty person and say, I declare you not guilty. And there's a reason for that, and he's going to explain it now. Let's go move on from the sinner's hope to the sinner's sacrifice, because it's all about him, Jesus Christ. And he says, but now, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin, People are made right with God. And see if you hear the theme. When they believe that Jesus has sacrificed his life, the sacrifice shows that God was being just. When he held back in the past, he, didn't punish, he wasn't quick to punish people, but he's looking forward ahead to the justice of the cross. This demonstrates his justice and his righteousness, and he, he's able to declare sinners to be right in his sight because of the cross. And so we talk about the sinner's sacrifice here. What a soul-stirring picture there for you in verse 25, isn't it? God the Father presented his son to the world. For God so loved, he loved us. He saw us, even though we were rebellious for ages, and wanting nothing to do with him. And he knew we would take his son, God in a body, and we would nail him to the cross on a piece of wood that he himself made, as I say many times. He knew all of this, and yet he still loves us and presented his son to us, to the world. And how did he do that? I have a picture. I have two, and there are two senses that verse 25 uh, kind of remind me of when God presented the word presented there means to set forth to publicly display to showcase to highlight God the father just said here he is your way out the guy is going to take the fall for you he's going to go to the gallows for you he's going to the electric chair for you here's a guy who's going to bail you out of your moral bankruptcy He's going to open wide the prison doors and set the captives free. Let me present to you my son. Picture of Jesus' baptism. He says, this is my son. 
Even though he's sinless, he's God the Son. He's the second person of the Godhead. He is going to undergo a baptism, not of his own, because in him I am well pleased, the voice says. But to identify, to be a sin offering on on your behalf, he has to identify as a sinner. So here he is saying, sacrifice, ready, willing, able, and accepted by God as a stand-in for the thugs in this world that would nail somebody like that to the cross, i.e. all of us. And so the next slide here is the second presentation of God saying, here's my son. I give him, and this is the task that he had to do, and I'm going to take all of your sins, and I'm going to put them on the sinless one, and I'm going to judge you and all of your sins on him. I'm going to act as if this is you, 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 and you, and the whole world, and everybody who's ever been created, all of their sins on him, and no wonder he sweat drops of blood. No wonder. No wonder he begged the father, if there is any other way, take this cup away from me, but I will suffer as you will have it. Nevertheless, your will, not mine. And obviously there was no other way. How else can God be just? That is the problem with Allah. As I told a Muslim guy who was trying to proselytize me in San Francisco, he walked up to me with a tract, trying to tell me about the wonders of Allah. And I said, here's my problem with your Allah. What does he do with your sins? He says, well, if we do the five pillars and we do this, Allah's merciful. I said, you know, my God, the only God, the only true living God, is very merciful as well, but he is just. My sins have been paid for. They've been placed on him. He doesn't wink at sin. What does your Allah do with sin? He just says, okay, you know, Boys will be boys. You know, you blow yourself up. You know you get some rewards. What? (laughs) Moving on before I get into trouble. (laughs) Might be too late for that. But, okay, moving back to the scripture there. Still verses 25 and 26 there. Notice that if you're going to get any of this goodness that God presented for the whole world, look at my son. Look what he's done for you. He's your way out. You'll have to trust him. You'll have to trust him. And he keeps saying to those who believe, to those who believe, to those who believe. They yield, they surrender. And the, and the way you know you really believe is when there's some kind of moral transformation and change. When you start start thinking in different ways, desiring different things, that's something you get a spiritual pulse in there. You know? It's not just stuck in here. Well, I know he did it. No, suddenly you're paying attention. Somebody just came to me and said, I'm a brand new Christian. I cannot, I did not even know how many times I said the name Jesus before. 
and not in a good way. That I was oblivious. But now, because he's genuinely saved, the Holy Spirit is pointing out to him every time he goes, whoa, God. No, 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 no more times like that. He can tell. He can check something. He can say, well, something's changing in me. You don't have that. You don't have the Lord. Nothing. No changes. No repentance. No tears. No drawing near to him. No desire to do what's right. It's a long 14 inches that will either save some people or damn others from head knowledge to the heart. The heart has to be impacted. Let it get down there. Pray it down there. Let it do its work. What I love here, and I already alluded to it in 25B, where he says, let's learn something about the cross. And then he does this thing that I think the NLT shines here and, and clears it up for all of us. He says, let me tell you what you can learn about the cross. He goes, we learn that God is just. Okay, well, he says God was very patient. Not to always be quickly punishing people for ages and ages. You know, 4,000 years have passed from Adam and Eve to Christ. And in those 4,000 years, yes, there was the flood. But outside of the flood, uh, there was second chances. There was uh, a world and is today, 6,000 years past, a flourishing world. A world that has progress, material advances, technological advances, medical advances. People who can't stand God live pretty good lives on this planet. Their bellies are generally filled. They go to graduations. uh, They enjoy weddings and birth announcements. And he says, just so you know, you might come to the knowledge that God is merciful and compassionate by looking at how patient he's been with a world that can't stand him. You would be right with the merciful and loving. But you might, and Paul and the Holy Spirit is like, but you might get the wrong idea about God. You might start thinking, well, you know, he's a little lax. He blesses people who don't deserve it. What's up with that? How can he call somebody who's guilty not guilty? He says, because he's always had in mind. You can go back to the cross me. He's always had this in mind. This says that the reason I could be patient for 4,000 years while people bow down to the things that they have made with their hands, when when his own people who have seen his miracles and passed through a sea that he has parted for them, Name two bulls that they fashion out of their gold earrings. They're gods who delivered them. He says, you want to know how I, I can go on with people like that and with guys like you and gals like you? This, I paid for it all. So I'm free now to be as kind as I want to whoever I feel. 
I'll show mercy to whoever I want because why? Every last illicit thought, every profane word, every corrupt deed has been 100% paid for by me. Therefore, Paul is saying, (laughs) this is why you will never ask yourself, is God just? Does he condone evil? I mean, after all, is he like Allah who just wink, wink, you know? You know, you do these five things, I'll let you in. No, no, no. He put them all, every last one of them, on his sinless son and sent him to death until they were all paid every last penny. Now he's free to say, you want to come to me? Not guilty. But, but I was a murderer. You never did it. Well, I did. No, you didn't. He did it. He did it. And he paid for it. He owned it. You? You're free. As if you never had an angry thought. And this is the response coming to the last verses. Now we'll close up. Can we boast about anything good that we've done? Of course not. And he goes on with that. But here's the response to that. Is this beautiful peace, this beautiful indebtedness and obligation to serve him and to love him, This is the sinner's response. Certainly not pride in one's good life, but a humbleness, a thankfulness, a gratitude to desire to serve him. So he says, what should, how should we respond? Should we be self-confident in how good we are and say, hey, I'm not as bad as that guy? That's what the boasting word means there. Can we boast? Boasting's excluded he says in the original. Uh, and what he means by boasting is not so much somebody who would boast out loud, though it includes that. It's somebody who kind of leans on their own goodness, that I'm not as bad as that guy. And I do a lot of good stuff, then God should be kind of impressed with me. It's that stupid performance-oriented thinking when it comes to pleasing God by being good. God's already settled it. You can't be good enough. Being good is good. Once you're reconciled, then it counts for something. But if you're not reconciled, God never is thinking of you even after you're reconciled. He never thinks and judges us by our efforts and how we're doing this week. This is the response. The response is not a self-confidence in us, but not in a running, but in a resting, not in a trying, but in a trusting. And so he says, it's Christ's sacrifice and faith. Verse 27a, a rhetorical question. In light of what God's done, in light of having a Savior that died on the cross for you and raised from the dead for you and went to prepare a place for you and open your heart and put new life in you, he's kind of done the whole thing. So he says, what's your response? Now, now don't miss this. Look at verse 27, 28, and 30, because three times he repeats it. And he's going to do it probably 100 times in the New Testament, the same line. God puts people right with himself only through faith 
not by obeying commands, moral goodness, man's effort. Why does he say it three times there and a hundred times in the New Testament and a hundred times in the Old Testament? Because we have thick skulls and we have, and because we have hard hearts. And it's such a blow to human ego that I can't do anything. One guy told me once, you mean to tell me that I have to get saved the same way a common criminal gets saved? Yeah, you do. Sorry, because you're one with us. Your common crimes are a little bit different than his blatant ones, but that's the way it goes. And that's why Jesus tells the Pharisees, you know who's getting saved before you guys? You know the Bible inside and out. You can quote the whole thing to me, he says. Very good, you know, but you're outside. You're not in the kingdom. You're not going to heaven. You know who is going to heaven before you? The tax collectors and the prostitutes. The riffraff of society is getting to heaven because they're more aware of their need. They have a felt need. And you're trusting in your own goodness. I know the scriptures. I keep this. I go to church. I give so much money. Blah, blah, blah. You're resting on that. All of those things could have been good things if you're reconciled. But if you're trusting in them for salvation, you're a dead man walking. And that's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He told a guy who makes a full-time living being a good guy, a Pharisee, dude, you've got to start all over again. You need new life. You need to be born from above. You need an, a soul-spirit interaction with the Spirit of God that make you alive. Nothing to do with your religious activities. That's what he had to say. And so he says, by believing the message, believing the message, believing the message, it's a strike to, once you get over the initial <laughs> uh, offense that everyone you see in heaven is a charity case. Every last person <laughs> is a, well, and guys hate this. You, you saying I'm a charity case? I don't know why all guys talk like they're from New York. <laughs> you saying I, I'm a charity case? Yeah. You are. Or you're, you'll go to hell. Which do you want? You want to be a charity case in heaven where you get zero credit. Jesus gets all the glory. And when we're around the throne, nobody's going to say, you know what I did? <laughs> you know how many churches I planted? Oh, gag me. That kind of thing. <laughs> Sorry. It's first service. I'm still tired. <laughs> so I say dumb stuff like that. But... Yeah, there's going to be none of that. And if you ever heard some of that, that's, uh, yeah, it's like, no. You won't hear that because the, that's the way people on the bottom level speak. I did this, I did that, and I did this. Didn't count for anything. Of course it didn't count anything because it's all dead works. You didn't know him. You didn't have new life. That's the whole thing. So he goes on to finish up now. Very interesting, and I, I don't want to leave you hanging with it. So verses 29 and 30 are a brief sidebar to his Jewish friends who are struggling with this simple, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No Israel anymore, no Judaism, no sacrifices, no kosher foods. 
No, no, have to come to Israel and become a Jew like the Old Testament period was pointing to Jesus, but those are the things you had to do. So they're struggling with this idea. It's too easy. What do you mean whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Just for And that's it? Well, look at the cross. Yes, that's it. So he says to his Jewish friends, is God the God of Israel only? Or didn't he make every other nation? Didn't he make the whole world? So doesn't it make sense that after Israel did its job to, make the, to bring Messiah into the world, that God presented Jesus through the Jews and through Judaism, had its job pointing to Jesus, that, that Jesus can take the baton, hand it to his people, the church, and say, go get the whole world now and, and tell them how easy it is. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Now, I use that scripture on purpose because it's an Old Testament scripture. It was always God's heart to make it easy to do the work for us and then just simply say, look to me. He puts a, uh, the bronze, the, the serpents are biting them for complaining in the wilderness, the Jewish people. He says, here's the cure. They're all dying and complaining. He says, take a... A serpent shape, so make a serpent out of bronze. Bronze is the symbol for judgment. Put it on a pole in the shape of a cross. Hold it up and tell them, just look at it. You'll be better from your snake bite. He's always been pointing to just look, just trust, just believe, just open your heart. And as I've said many times, the horror of hell. To miss heaven, the horror of it is, is that it didn't require a thing except yielding and trusting and believing. So what he's trying to say to the Jewish people there is, doesn't it make sense he is the God of the whole world? Did you expect them to keep coming back to Israel, the whole world come to Israel, and all the males get circumcised? That's how you become a Jew. And all of this stuff, he says, that's ridiculous. He makes the message easy for the whole world to enter in now. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's the message of the gospel, and it goes out. Now, we close out with the preemptive strike, and, and it's the age-old problem from day one. Okay, it's all about faith. I'm saved by grace. It's not about my good works. Well, then, hmm. Then I guess those good works and keeping God's command doesn't matter so much because I'm saved by grace. Ah, the whole New Testament brings that up like, no. Once again, silly rabbits. <laughs> if ever there was a need for that expression, it's there. L listen, he says, do we forget the law? Because I've, look at your last verse, verse 31. Because I've emphasized faith, 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 and grace, 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 just believe, 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 does, does, do we forget about God's commands? Do we nullify them, get rid of them, skip over them, disregard them? That's what that means. And then he says, of course not. He says, God's moral laws are good and right. They just can't save you, right? So well, once we're saved, we love them. We live by them. Now listen, what do you mean by Old Testament law establishing it or fulfilling it once you're saved? Understand Old Testament law and you're done. It's so easy. Christians make it so hard. 
Number, there are two segments of the law that we have nothing to do with us. One that does, and this is what he's talking about. Number one, the ceremonial laws of Judaism that regarded sacrifice, all pointing to Jesus, the, the Levitical laws, they pointed to Jesus, Jesus came, done. They don't apply. Kosher laws, all of that, Sabbath keeping, fulfilled in Jesus. Number two, the national laws to govern an ancient nation. We are the church, we're not ancient Israel. Don't apply. What does apply is God's moral law, and sometimes the New Testament calls it Christ's law, the law of Christ. It's thou shalt not murder. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others with the kind of interest you have in yourself. It's thou shalt not steal. It's thou shalt not commit adultery. God's moral laws never cease, and they are the laws we establish and fulfill and love and uphold. And notice in the text, it says only when we have faith, we can fulfill, establish. What does that mean? Number one, only born again hearts have the power to obey. Number two, only born again hearts have the desire to obey. Three, and only when we're right with God do any of those good uh, obedience measures matter. Because, for example, and as I've said many times, even in this sermon, if you don't lie, but you don't know Christ, and you're not reconciled to him, what good is keeping the commandment? So in that regard, he's saying the commandment is useless unless you know Christ, and then it's very good. Then they're good. The moral laws, not the laws about shrimp and pork. Those have been fulfilled in Christ. But the laws to love God, to act justly, to be humble, to walk with God, those laws, and Jesus said this, if you love me, you keep my commands, you see? So once again, another test to see if you're really saved. The, really, the unsaved person says, hey, all I got to do is believe and nothing else matters. The real saved person has the Holy Spirit and says, I can't wait to do God's will because keeping God's commands keeps us in fellowship with him. Amen? You can't run around as a Christian and, and do self-centered, rude things and be envious and covetous and rip people off and think, well, I'm saved by grace. Well, you might still be saved, but you're out of fellowship with God and God's going to bring down chastisement on you. So it's never a good idea. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the, these passages that keep us from, from craziness and from unproductive thinking and ineffective serving. Help us, Lord, to walk the straight and narrow path and to take a deep breath, a sigh of relief that it just doesn't depend on us. It depends on you. Free us up to, to love you and serve you out of that heart. 
not a heart to try to earn it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.